0: name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. And just then, Boaz arrived arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, "Who, Who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, "'My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, Go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, Ruth bowed with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And she said, uh, May I continue to have favor in your eyes, my Lord. You, you have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here. "'Have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar.' "'When she sat down with the harvesters, "'he offered her some roasted grain. "'She ate all she wanted, and she had some left over. "'And she got up, as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, uh, "'Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. "'Even pull out some of the stalks for her from the bundles "'and leave them for her to pick up, and don't rebuke her.' "'So Ruth gleamed in the field until evening.' Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. Which uh, there's different speculations as to how much that is. Some people uh, estimate it about it would be about six gallons or thirty pounds, and in today's currency, it would be as much as twelve hundred dollars in a single day twelve hundred bucks. Uh, so she carried it back to to the town. Verse eighteen, and her mother in law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you gleam today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and to the dead. She added, That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, He he even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. It's a great story. Uh, here we have in chapter 2 the plot think- thickening. And by the end of the chapter, even Naomi, who was previously so bitter and frustrated at God, even Naomi is getting excited about life again and excited about uh, you know, what the Lord might be doing in her story. But that's not where I want to begin Sexual harassment of women has been all over the national headlines over the last several weeks The list of names of men who have been caught in it is quite long Uh, In the past, victims of harassment or victims of abuse were either shamed into silence Or their stories were buried under non-disclosure agreements and monetary payouts That's beginning to change I mean, thankfully, one of the great, I guess, benefits we would say about social media is, at least in this instance, it has given women courage to speak up and to tell their stories, uh, to come forward, and finally, at last, the world has begun to listen to them and believe them. The reason I start here is what what immediately stands out to me when I read Ruth chapter 2 is the simple observation that this woman would have been so easy to exploit and to oppress. You realize how easy it would have been to um, to harm this woman. So the ancient Hebrew social hierarchy pyramid, um, it goes something like this. At the very top of the pyramid you have the king of Israel or whoever is the judge of Israel in that day. Right below him are the tribal leaders so that you would say the Uh, The leader of the tribe of Judah would be next. After that, the clan leaders. So the clan of Elimelech is mentioned in this story. They're third. Below that would be the elders of the city. The elders of the city of Bethlehem, for instance. After that would be your older patriarchs, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, followed by fathers, followed by... The eldest son in a family, then other sons, then wives, in the case of Naomi, the wife, um, daughters are next, male servants, female servants, resident aliens, which would be people, foreigners who have permanently settled in the land and have some kind of a social standing in the land, male servant, female servant, resident aliens, male refugees. And last of all, checking in at number 15, literally at the very bottom of the hierarchy, would be female foreign refugees. Uh, And in her case, she's a female foreign refugee who doesn't have a family to protect her. I mean, there's no male there to protect her. You know, back then... The threat was that if you mess with my sister, you mess with my daughter, you mess with my wife, then me and my extended family, we are going to come and we are going to seriously mess up you. I mean, that was how justice rolled in those days. That's how it was done. But here you have a woman who has absolutely no protection whatsoever. And we remember, again, from uh, last week, that what is the setting of the story? It is set during the time of the judges, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes and where, when sexual violence was rampant in that in the country. Did you notice what Boaz says to, to his men in the story? Did you catch that? He says to his men, basically, don't touch her. Keep away from her. Don't lay a hand on her. Why does he say that? Because he knows that she could be She could be abused by even his own men. He knows that his own men could either rape her or kill her. And he says, you stay away from her, guys. Um, You say, where have all the good men gone? Finally, in in the land of Israel, a good man steps up. A man who says, I will not tolerate this anymore. I will not um, allow you to to be harmed anymore anymore. I will protect you. Uh, Man, where have all the good men gone in America? (laughs) Where are the guys who stand up and say that? His technical title is Guardian Redeemer. I love how this translation of Ruth chapter uh, 2 renders the word Goel, Guardian Redeemer. And next week, we're going to see all of the different ways he functions as a Redeemer. This morning, what I'd like to do is ask three questions Why is Ruth in the field of Boaz? Question number one. Question number two, how did she get in that particular field? And then question number three is, how is Boaz a heroic picture of Jesus Christ? Uh, Fitting for us to be looking at on the first Sunday of Advent. So question number one is where we're going to start. Why is she in the field of Boaz? The action of the book of Ruth centers around this activity of gleaning. It is based upon the laws outlined in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, laws which were crafted for the protection of the vulnerable and the poor in Israelite society. The law states that landowners were required to leave the edges of their fields untouched and unharvested allowing the poor to come in and pick uh, around the edges of the field as a way to support their families. The law also states that once the harvesters have completed their work in the main field, the poor could come in uh, behind them and presumably you know, crawl on their hands and knees down the rows of grain or, or the road, rows of produce, and retrieve whatever was dropped or missed by the harvesters. And that is the activity of, uh, clearly being described here with, um, with Ruth. I know this isn't the main point of the passage, but I do think it bears noting um, that this is a social safety net mandated by God. Landowners were required to opt into, you could call it the welfare system, or you could call it the uh, workforce training program. Because I guess it's a little bit of both. But they were required in the land of Israel to, to provide in this way. It, um, sometimes you hear businessmen say things along the lines of, that our only obligation is, is to maximize return on investment for our shareholders. But um, this law kept landowners from doing that very thing. It, it stopped them. From maximizing their profits. They were required to grant access to their property free of charge. Uh, You also notice that there isn't a cumbersome, corruption-prone bureaucracy overseeing the program. It is implemented at the local level. Uh, It's very local. It's very simple. And it very much depended upon the character of the landowner to see to it that this actually took place. I mean, it required a good man to follow the letter of the, the law, And unfortunately, based on what we uh, study later on in Israelite history, it seems as though this law of gleaning was rarely uh, followed the way it was supposed to be followed to its fullest extent. On the flip side, though, uh, you notice that this is not a handout. This required hard, manual labor, down on your hands and knees, crawling through the, the dirt and the ground, Um, They obviously, the poor obviously had to work very hard to receive this. But it is an alternative to the other things that the poor would have back in that day. They're not begging. They're not engaging in prostitution. There is no slavery as a result of this. There's no other forms of degradation that one would normally find with the ancient poor. Um, In fact, what this law does is it gives dignity to the person because it puts... It makes them um, be somewhat responsible for maintaining their own welfare. They have to. They get to work to, to achieve their own welfare and end. Furthermore, quote um, gleaners maintain the, the skills, the self-respect, physical conditioning, and work habits that would make them productive members of a society if. One day they either remarried or they were adopted into another family or even if they returned to their country of origin But I mean basically they would have the job skills necessary to go back and to do farming as a result As a result of the time um, uh, the work that they had done So what's my point? <laughs> um, I'm not advocating one way or another for how the United States uh, should operate its welfare system um, Modern political solutions, when you have 350 million people in a country, are probably much more complex than when you have 2 million people in a country. But I just thought, isn't it interesting to see how God goes about caring for the poor in his, in his land? Like this, is, this is Emmanuel's land, and the poor matter so much to me that I'm going to have very tangible laws in place, that are obligatory. Of course, they're obligatory. They're laws, but laws in place so that you will make sure that the poor are taken care of. Question number two: How does Ruth wind up in Boaz's field? When you read the Hebrew in verse three of this passage, it essentially says um, it essentially says that Ruth got lucky. <laughs> As luck would have it, she just happened to find herself by coincidence and fortuitous chance and because she had her lucky rabbit's foot in her pocket that day, or because because her number came up in the lottery um, Now, the narrator describes it that way; he doesn't believe for an instance that it's coincidental I mean that becomes clear just the very way that he tells or she tells the story. But the storyteller tells it in such a way to acknowledge that it certainly looks like it's by chance. In fact, a lot of life looks like it's governed by randomness and chance, doesn't it? One of the things that really comforts me about the Bible is the Bible acknowledges this. It acknowledges that God created a world that looks um, random and haphazard. I'll give you an example in the book of 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings 22, the wicked king Ahab, the king of Israel, goes out into battle disguised as an ordinary soldier in order to being, in order to be avoid being targeted as the king in the battlefield and he does so in express disobedience to the warning provided in the name of God by the prophet Micaiah. So First Kings chapter 22, verse 34, it says, quote, and a certain man drew his bow at random and he struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. And then um, he says, I've been wounded and he tells his chariot dr- driver to uh, you know, have him flee from the battlefield and, and he ends up dying. How is that for accidental?" an archer just lets one fly. You know, 27 degree launch angle, 103 miles an hour off the string into a five mile an hour crosswind with 34% relative humidity and 72 degree temperature. And it says that it struck him in just the right place, right between the breastplate and the, and the um, scale armor. So if it hit the breastplate, it just would have bounced off. And if it would have hit the scale armor, it would have never penetrated enough to damage his organs. But what, what happened? Did he like bend over, and there was a little opening, and it just, it was the, for that instantaneous split second, it was able to go right through. Um, and know oh, by the way, Ahab was one of the most wicked kings of Israel, and this was no accident, even though it looked like an accident. I take comfort in the fact that the Bible acknowledges this. It acknowledges in its narration of events how much of life does appear to be coincidental and accidental. It's almost as if God wants us to know that he knows that that's how the world looks to us. And yet he also wants us to know that at the end of the day, there are no accidents And at the end of the day, he is the grand storyteller who is crafting the narrative. The story happens to be a story of redemption. Nowhere is this more vividly uh, evident than on Good Friday. Remember the soldiers at the foot of the cross. They enter into, by the casting of lots, that's a game of chance. It's a game of chance that they play at the foot of the cross Winner take all, and they get the last possessions of the crucified man. In Jesus' case, it was a one-piece tunic. But this chance event fulfills Psalm 22, which says, that they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. When Jesus dies, then one of the soldiers standing by him just happens to have a spear, and he just so happens to thrust that spear up into Jesus' side, accidentally, fulfilling Zechariah chapter 12, that they will look on him whom they have pierced. Then finally afterwards, you know the story, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, just so happens to have an empty tomb nearby for the transportation of the body, and he takes him, uh, the body of Jesus, that's fulfilling Isaiah chapter 53, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Very briefly, what uh, what difference would it make if we consistently believed in the sovereignty of God? Consistently believe in the sovereignty of God. I notice this all the time with married couples who begin to experience marriage problems. When they meet each other at the very beginning of their relationship, if they're Christians, they always say, "God brought us together." They can look at all of the wonderful, fortuitous events that led to the two of them falling in love and and uh, you know sharing life together, right? You always hear that from about married couples, and if I have concerns about a couple being married and I voice those concerns to them, they always tell me about all the different ways that they can clearly see God brought them together fast forward to three years later, and they 're really really struggling and You know what? This whole sovereignty of God thing is completely out of the picture. It really is. They end up writing God out of the story. He's no longer sovereignly present. It's really troubling to me. I mean, here it is. We believe as Christians that God, the grand narrative of the universe is the narrative of a husband laying down his life for his bride, of a Boaz being a redeemer for this beautiful woman uh, by the name of Ruth. That's the grand narrative sovereignly being written, and yet we got husbands and wives who a few months in or a few years are in are going to be satisfied with uh, completely forgetting that. That's not right. Randy Alcorn, in one of his books, invites his readers to consider what your life would be like if God regularly explained to you why he allows all of the chance, coincidental disappointments which come into your life. He says, imagine that you're a teenage girl who gets sick on prom night. What could be worse? You're sick on the biggest night of my life. But God comes to you and he says, child, you want to know why this happened? Here's why. I let you get pneumonia so that you wouldn't fall in love with that guy, your date, because he's not the right one for you. And I let you get sick so that your parents would go get your favorite dessert at Cold Stone Creamery and there would be a help wanted sign and they would tell you to apply there to get the job and then you would meet the girl who would become your best friend and and help you 20 years from now when your husband gets cancer and whoa she's hold on God for a second my husband I'm gonna have a husband what is he like and why would you let him get cancer isn't cancer just the most random thing in the world? A cell decides to mutate, and I mean, why did that cell decide to do that? Uh, uh, and and um, and God goes on. Yes, your friend, um, he she will be there, and I'll take you guys through this to teach your husband to depend on me, and to draw you and your children and grandchildren closer to me. And she says, Oh, I'm going to have children and grandchildren. How many? How many boys? How many girls? How will they deal with their father's cancer? You see what's going on, don't you? Uh, it's just one simple event. It's one random event. Somehow you contracted pneumonia on Friday night. <laughs> Somehow one of those germs flying through the air got into your bloodstream. Uh, but how could you know God's purposes for today without Him revealing all of His purposes for tomorrow? Friends God is always at work, despite of appearances um, and he has millions of little reasons why he's doing what he's doing. Um, what we have to do is comfort ourselves with these facts, th- these if-then statements. If God is sovereign, then He is in control of all the details of my life. If God is loving, then He is going to be shaping the details of my life for my good and His glory. If He is all-wise then he's not going to do everything that I would want him to do because I don't actually know what are the best things for him to do. And if God is mysterious, then I couldn't understand him and all of his purposes, even if he tried to explain them to me. I don't know that. I don't know why they're the accidents. Um, But I know that God is always at work despite the appearances otherwise. Okay, question number three. And this is what the passage is mostly and really about. Boaz. So, how is Boaz a heroic picture of Jesus Christ? What about Boaz the hero? Uh, Q. Bonnie Tyler. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the end of the night. <laughs> he's got to be strong and he's got to be fast and he's got to be fresh from the fight. How is this man uh, a hero? Well, the first thing we notice is that he's, he seems to be a pretty humble man. This, this hero seems to be humble. You notice how he sits down and shares lunch with his workers? He doesn't go off into the executive lunchroom and eat by himself. He sits down with his field men, and he shares a meal with them, uh, and he blesses them. The Lord, bl- the Lord be with you, and then they return the kind, kind greetings. Um, He's humble. Then look at verse 4. We read that um, just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. Oh, there it is. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. And then he says, um, so who does that woman belong to? And the the overseer replies, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab. Uh, If you forget where she's from, it's only repeated like 17 times in the passage. (laughs) She came back from Moab with Naomi And then you skip down to verse 8 And notice how he addresses her He does not say, hey you Moabite He says, my daughter The first words out of his mouth to this foreigner Are words of welcome and inclusion My daughter That's a family term Um, And isn't that how Jesus speaks with us? Even though we are foreigners, exiles, strangers to the promises of God, doesn't he say, my son, my daughter? I heard Charles Garland, one of my favorite preachers, make an excellent observation on this passage. He said that poor people are invisible people. Poor people are invisible people. When you are poor, you are rarely seen and rarely noticed by others. Or if you are noticed, you are noticed negatively Somebody might look at Ruth and say, she's a leech on the social system. She's taking away resources that other true Israelites uh, will need. She's a refugee. She's from a hated country. She's from a people with a different religion. She's from a people who have a terrible moral reputation. But she's not invisible to Boaz. Even though she's a refugee, he treats her as though she belongs there. Isn't that beautiful? He treats her like she belongs. My favorite part of the narrative is how Boaz tells Ruth her story back to her. He actually tells her story back to her in a way, in such a dignifying way. I don't think Ruth would ever tell her own story this way. Uh, But notice what he says, you know, he doesn't say you dirty little foreigner who messed up your life through intermarriage, you're from that terrible country. He says in such a dignified way, I know how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. He just, he tells her her story, uh, focusing on all of the, I guess, the positives of her story, of all the... Of sacrifices that she had made as part of her story. It's, it's beautiful retelling. I guess it just, it says how, it gives an image of how he sees her. He sees her better than she likely sees herself. And then he prays for her. He prays that the Lord would richly reward you. The Lord would repay you. The very next thing he does is he answers his own prayer. He prays that God would reward her. And then who rewards her? he rewards her he's the one who then gives to her um this rich reward it's just like jesus jesus prays for us father forgive them and then he answers his own prayer by dying on the cross which is the very thing that secures our forgiveness Uh, what happens next uh she he says okay well you can drink from our water pitchers my men have gone and they have uh gathered, they've drawn up the water from my wells, I will let you drink from my wells, and then I will let you eat at my table. And then she, when she comes to the table, did you pick this up? He's the one that serves her. He serves her. He's the one who offers her the roasted grain. So he not only, like Jesus, sets the table, and it is his table, but he actually feeds them, feeds her directly you know, from his table. He becomes a servant of a Moabite. It, what a picture of Jesus. So Ruth is just blown away. She's bewildered. Why are you being so nice to me? Why should I find such favor in your eyes? And the answer, the technical answer, is because he's a redeemer. He, and a redeemer is a hero, A redeemer is the guy, he's the family member who, when you're in jail, he goes and bails you out. Or when you're in jail, he goes and busts you out. Or when you have debts, he's the one that pays all those debts off. A redeemer is a a true hero. Um, There's a tiny minority of scholars out there today who believe that Jesus of Nazareth is a fictional character. They believe that Jesus was, in, was entirely made up. He's, an, in their words, archetypal hero of fiction made up by the early Christians. So I was reading a guy, a prominent New Testament theologian this past week who was criticizing that view because it really, it, it's not a strong view at all. Um, it's not convincing on a historical level in the least. But I was thinking, um, okay, you're saying Jesus is a, a fictional hero, Isn't it interesting that actually Jesus, he doesn't fit the archetypal patterns of a hero. If anything, he is the anti-hero. He is the anti-comic book movie star hero. hero. If you'll just bear me out for a couple more minutes, consider these common traits that we have in our heroes today. Number one, our heroes, our movie screen heroes are always flawed they always have some character flaw. Luke Skywalker, he's too young, and he can't focus. Harry Potter, he's also too young, and he can't control his temper. We love the fact that our characters have, our heroes have character flaws, uh, because that might mean that we who have character flaws too, we can be heroes. We are hero materials. Um, Every hero on the movie screen has a character flaw, Except for Jesus. Secondly, heroes—if you always notice—heroes are are filled with self doubt. There's always an internal conflict in the lead character of the story, and the internal conflict is usually the same: is they doubt themselves. Uh, we love that about our characters. Again, we love that, that they doubt themselves because we doubt ourselves, and uh, and so maybe we can be heroes too because we're just like them. We we distrust our own abilities. But not Jesus. He never doubted himself. Thirdly, heroes always seek a guide. Almost every hero you meet needs a guide who has been there and done that before. I mean, Luke needs Yoda. Uh, Frodo needs Gandalf. They lack something in themselves. They lack either knowledge, skill, or confidence to make it out there on their own. So they have to find a guide to help them navigate forward. Of course, that's, that doesn't work with Jesus because Jesus said, I am the guide. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Fourthly, heroes are often reluctant. They get pushed into, they get forced into the action of a story, oftentimes against their own will. In storytelling terms, this is called an inciting incident. They're either lazy or they are just self doubtful, and they kind of have to be pushed out of their hobbit hole onto the road to Mordor because they're not going to go there uh, without a a serious nudge, except for Jesus. Jesus was never nudged out of heaven. (laughs) Oh, you got to go, son. This was always his desire, his desire was always to come to the cross. And fifthly, finally, thank you for your patience, <laughs> 99% of the time, heroes have to change for the better. So at the beginning of the story, they're cowardly, and at the end, they are brave. Or at the beginning, they're selfish and altruistic at the end. About 15 minutes before the end of every movie, you'll notice an all is lost moment where the hero is about to revert back to his previous character flaws. You ever notice that? The hero is about, the villain's about to, um, to, to win. Uh, the, the hero's about to cave. They're about to become their old self. Will they be their new self and their new identity, their old self? Then um, all is lost until they are able to become, maintain their new self, but not Jesus. He was firm all the way through. Do you realize? He never wavered in his love for us. From the beginning and all the way through, he was holy, faithful, and true. He knew that he was going to the cross to be our redeemer. He never ever wavered in his love for us, not in an instant. And in that way, he fulfills the prayer of Boaz in verse 12. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. In this Advent season, well, especially next week, we're going to look and see how he's a redeemer and particularly how his wings come over us and cover us and shield us and protect us. Amen.